Hello, I'm your host, Gillian Semler. You're listening to Let's Talk, brought to you by Citilets and Arla Property Mart Scotland. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show for the world of property letting, investment, legislation, personal stories and much more. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's Talk at citilets.co.uk. Today my guest is Clive Rooney, crew member of Five in a Row, which is the only Scottish crew in the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge and sponsored by CityLets. Morning Clive. Good morning Jillian. Now first of all, can you tell the listeners about the Atlantic Challenge as it's known as the world's toughest rowing race? So, uh, what can I tell you about it? Um, we will be setting off from Lagomera, which is a tiny island in the Canaries on the 12th of December. Um, The race has been, and we will row, sorry, 3,000 miles to Antigua in the Caribbean. The race has been around probably for over 25, about 25 years. And its initial concept, Shea Blythe invented it and it ran every other year. It then was picked up by a guy called uh, Simon Chalk and run under the Woodvale, which a lot of people uh, resonates with anybody who's uh, involved in ocean rowing will have heard about the Woodvale uh, race. And then its current format was bought by Atlantic Campaigns, uh, 2003, 2004. And they run it as an annual fixture now in terms of a race across the Atlantic. The format is a open uh, race and a, uh, sorry, an open category and a race. Um, the open category are for boats other than Rannoch. And then Rannick are the main racing boat for the actual uh, crossing. Um, we are a five-man uh, crew. The the clues in the name, uh, five yeah. in a row. Um, but this is undertaken by people who do it in a solo capacity Gosh. through pairs, trios, quads. Uh, I have to say. Solo would never be for me. I, I would really struggle with my own company for that length of time, probably, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, but, yeah, some people enjoy the get away from it, completely switch off, and they really enjoy the solo aspect of it. You're not reliant on anybody. How many you know, solo roars are in this year? I race? don't actually know, in all honesty. This year is probably the biggest year that they're going to run. Um, I certainly have done under the current uh, guys of the race um, where I think it's about 39 or 40 boats now are in it right unfortunately there have been a few dropouts um, of people just not making it to the start line unfortunately but um, but that said it'll be a big race and um, certainly we're aware of some very competitive teams out there which is uh, good because it'll keep it uh, the racing interesting and does it does do it does anyone tend to do it again have you got anyone that's already competed in the race before oh interesting question i think there are some people who do do it multiple times in fact actually last year a guy called mark slats who was in the winning boat has done it twice now he set the world record as a solo and he's now set a world record as a double uh, last year they had an amazing crossing last year. They right. built a boat completely bespoke, uh, built by Mark Slats. They got backed by Garmin to the tune of about a quarter of a million to build this thing completely oh. out of carbon fiber and to have it that it's completely uh, ready to row an ocean. Not that the Rannocks are not, it's just <laughs> that they were able to have some technologies in there that enabled them to move water around the boat and things like that. Very slick. Yeah, in terms of it took a lot of uh, the 
I wouldn't say it took a lot of the effort out of it. It took a lot of thinking out of maybe uh, rolling right. it. No disrespect so to Mark if he's listening. There, um, yeah. But like it's a double. Yeah. They beat uh, all the, the the trees and the quads. So it's amazing, amazing uh, feat for them to have uh, completed it and so so quickly. And how long, on average, does it take? Um, it depends really uh, very much on the conditions. Like as much as anybody could be standing on the start line and saying, "I'm going from gunning for a world record." The reality is that you are at the mercy of uh, the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, it was a complete freak year um, where it was completely becalmed conditions and there was no wind that really picked oh. up. Um, I should have said the race actually takes place in December because that's when the trade winds are at their strongest yeah. in that part of the world. And we follow a, a route, uh, I think it's Trade Winds 2, where we head southwest out of Lagomera and then uh, westerly across to Antigua. Um, but yeah, the weather conditions really do drive a lot of how quick or how slow in terms of the crossings are. Certainly for our five man, the record was set uh, a year ago in Ocean 5. They did it in 35 days and, right, and okay. change. Um, so what, what's said to be the kind of shortest time and the longest time then? Oh, roughly 30 plus days in terms of being the shortest, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there has been one maybe at 29 or something. Wow. Um, in terms of the longest then, you could be talking for a solo, like three plus months. It's you know, incredible. you imagine like 70 odd days, 80 days that you're going to be at sea on your own. Um, and not only that, the, the psychological effects yeah. of the fleet pulling away from you, I think would be just of soul course. destroying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to be at the head of the fleet rather than the, the back of it, uh, my competitive nature. But <laughs> uh, I think that must be really hard to deal with, though, knowing that people are already in Antigua, you know, having their party, their large glass of rum to celebrate, and you are still weeks and weeks away, must have a big impact on how, uh, how to, to prepare for it and everything. So why did you all decide to do the race then? Why did we decide? That is an excellent question, Gillian. It is really a drunken is. drunken decision? Uh, there certainly were a few refreshments involved, <laughs> definitely. Um, so uh, three of our, four of us are actively involved in the coastal rowing scene. Um, you're uh, all from North Berwick that's right yeah, apart we're from, from one Nor- of you yeah. uh, apart from one of us Fraser who's from Perth I'm uh, Ross, Dunk, Ian and myself are from North Berwick Ian, Dunk and I have rowed together for about six years out of North Berwick in a St Isle skiff which is as simple a boat as you could draw in terms of wind clinker built boat um, and we've really enjoyed that and uh, Ross joined the club uh, three, four or four years ago and he's been and we've all been re- reasonably successful with that in terms of representing our club at uh, world championships and uh, winning medals at world champs mm-hmm. and I think after the last world championships um, in fact I'll give you the backstory. We, we represented the world champs uh, in uh, 19 or 2018 we got beaten to silver by about a foot and a foot uh, that distance of our margin of loss was really sore yeah because we had we, we had trains we thought we were fairly competitive all the crews we've been beaten all the that year and then to lose was gutting so the next time we came to the world champs again we said we're not going to let this happen and we really trained hard over the winter we were doing uh three four ergo sessions every week as well as uh uh, circuit training out on the water and we were leaving no stone unturned to make sure we won it and we won the, follow, or the following world champs Fantastic. in uh, 2000 and 
20 or whatever it was. And, and that was amazing. And then I think after that, we all felt a bit bereft of the challenge anymore. Next World Champs was three years away. We weren't sure what we wanted to do. We found a boat on eBay that was like £8,000. <laughs> uh, £8, and we we're like, guys, we just buy this <laughs> and have our own challenges. That's like uh, Road to Ireland or uh, uh, Dunk works with shipping and a lot of ships come over from Norway. And he's like, come on, let's go to Stavanger and uh, Norway. Well, you're and like, I, no, that's not far enough. Let's... Yeah, uh, but then I think the reality of, guys, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. Yeah. Like, the talent square is always on on the horizon. I have read about it and follow I read about Ocean Rowing probably about 13, 14 years ago after Ben Fogel and James Cracknell did a crossing and it was televised and I found that really interesting and I read quite a few books since then. And for me it was always a bit of an itch in terms of could we or could I or could I get into a crew that would ever do it? And I think with that, things led on, conversations commitment to it uh, we find uh, some, through a friend of a friend then Fraser who was actively looking for a crew to participate in this now, now rumour has it that Fraser hadn't actually rowed before so um, is that true because that's quite uh, that is very true fire. actually very true so uh, Fraser is a very uh, successful uh, polo player and represented Scotland UK in years gone by and um, wanted another challenge, and as well as taking on and starting up a hotel, he's uh, <laughs> he wanted to row the Atlantic, and we were quite keen to get him involved. And Fraser brought a certain uh, element to the team dynamic in that he was like, "Gun ho, guys, let's just do it, let's commit." And over uh, drinks one night, which I wasn't there because I'd said I was out of it by this stage, I couldn't commit to it. Uh, they signed up. And then I got absolute fear of missing out. I came back into it again. And then after that, we were like four, we're four guys. If we make it five, it makes it a lot easier. The workload gets split five ways. Yep. What about it? And Ross seemed like an obvious uh, choice then in terms of, because we knew he was quite keen to uh, take rowing to the next level in terms of uh, uh, endurance. And yeah, so Ross was joined Ross the crew Yeah. So, well, the race is obviously, you know, I've said physically challenging as well as mentally. And a previous Atlantic rower said it takes the body and mind to extremes. So what's the crew's foremost concerns? Making the start line is definitely the start of the first one. Um, we, we've certainly heard the phrase quite a few times. You need to be stupid enough to say yes and stubborn enough to make yourself get or get yourself to the start line. Getting to the start line is no small feat in itself. Like there's a lot of money to be raised. Um, our campaign is probably going to cost around 115,000 in terms of getting to the start line itself. Mm. Um, and just the sheer volume of administration, logistics, understanding is a big part of um, getting there. Atlantic campaigns are very open about this. They make it hard to get to the start line because they don't want people turning up who are not committed. They don't want people who are there for a jolly. They want people who want to see the race through. So that's probably our biggest concern. Our second one is space on the boat. Um, we are five reasonably big guys. Yeah, well, you actually, have to take all your own supplies, don't you? Yeah, I should say four of us are reasonably big freezers. Um, the the, uh, the ship's boy, <laughs> he'll hate me saying that, but he's somewhat uh, 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 less taller than the rest of us. Um, uh, <laughs> So we, yeah, the boat 
like we carry ourselves five people we have 350 kilograms or so of food to put in there as well as all the kit that actually the boat requires in order to be uh, competition ready um and that does not leave a lot of space in the boat like yeah. if you can imagine the boat itself for listeners it is uh open deck with two cabins one at either end they are just about big enough to get two people in comfortably if we have to go on to... Yeah, when you say cabins, because obviously I've seen the boat, I mean, your legs go actually underneath. The deck. Don't they? Yeah, underneath the deck. So yeah. it's, yeah, so it's not like full-length cabins, no, is it? No, no, yeah. no, it's not like you pop in and... Boxes. Pick, uh, it's not like you pop in and jump on your bunk. It yeah. certainly is not. It is, uh, they're very bare. It is literally just a large opening to curl up in. And all so, your supplies are going underneath as well, aren't yeah. they? Mm -hmm. So there's four big, uh, six big um, storage areas from the mm -hmm. deck down to the keel of the boat and that's where all of our food and some of the essential equipment that we need to sustain life, like a water maker, batteries, um, all gets put on. All in all, the boat will probably be about one and a half tonnes by the time we get to the, the start right. line. So effectively we're trying to shift uh, one and a half tons across 3,000 miles. Two biggest concerns make the start line and our space on the boat itself. The actual concerns about the race, we don't have many in all okay. honesty. I think we're, we're preparing well in terms of physical training um, and mentally. Um, we've uh, got people behind us who are trying to get us ready for that, but it's the, it's just those are, I suppose are probably yeah. the two biggest things. That I mean, I've seen you, I've, I've watched, you know, clips from previous races. And then for me, just seeing, obviously, just the physical effects as well. So I mean, we've talked about physically first, you know, from obviously, you know, the, the really horrendous blisters that you've got to roll through, you know, from the salt air and the salt water. I mean, I don't know, do you tend to, to then wear gloves for, you know, how do you deal with kind of rowing through? There's... There's a, probably a lot of, I think the the pictures you've probably seen make the the, yeah. the drama of the race and those yeah. are heavily publicised in all honesty. There are, have been through recent years, the organised Atlantic campaigns are trying to push it towards more of a, certainly not a jolly, more of a, an elite sport where they want people to take it seriously and get prepared properly. So yeah. we're certainly preparing by hardening our hands now already. Right. So that goes with rowing and putting surgical spirit on them to yeah. try and harden them. But a lot of it can be done away with by maintaining and cleaning properly. Like okay. A big thing on the boat is actually making sure we stay uh, able to row. Yeah. And that's just keeping a drill and discipline about cleaning ourselves down after either each race. And I say cleaning yeah. ourselves down, there's no shower on board. I know, there's not even a, a, um, a loo, is there? I no, mean, it's, so it's we a bucket. Exactly, <laughs> a bucket. A bucket and jacket. Uh, well, yeah. exactly that, a bucket. <laughs> and a, um, we are, uh, certainly some people have said to us, if you can just get on top of the routine of cleaning. Like, we use, there'll be biodegradable wet wipes that we carry on board. Um, but cleaning is like paramount yeah. every time. Because it means like your hands will stay okay if you keep them clean and moisturized and your backside is another area that yeah. can certainly um, take a punishment, take punishment Absolutely. during it. The, uh, during the, the, there's a part of our course, one of the courses we have to do is an ocean rowing certificate. They show quite graphic photographs of some of the worst cases, I think to try and scare us into yeah. making sure that we follow the guidance about keeping clean and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, making sure that we don't fall foul of it. Well, what about things like muscle cramping? So, uh, th things like that can be overcome again. Like, you've got to remember, we're not 
trying to sprint to Antigua. That's just mm -hmm. physically impossible. We're trying to keep a tapping almost on the oars. Uh, for those of you, if anybody's listening has actually ever rowed before in like a river boat or out on sea, on a, you know, you're covering a short distance and trying to do it as quickly as possible. We're trying to cover a, a long distance as quickly as possible. So therefore it's more of a light rowing rather than gun-ho the yeah. whole time. And I think, um, the, the teams who go out gun-ho burn out very quickly. Yeah. And it's very evident actually, because they do really well for three or four days and then the conditions have overcome them and they then slow right down because they can't maintain uh, that level of rowing. So what happens? I mean, obviously we hope this wouldn't, but you know, if somebody gets in a bad way or, you know, what's, so, what are your uh, plans there? So in terms of like, there are, amongst the fleet, there'll be two uh, yachts uh, from Atlantic campaigns who sort of tack in between all of the competitors. They're not a support yacht and they're very clear about that actually. Um, it is unsupported. They're there for mainly for safety in terms of if something does go wrong and the crisis management aspect. But they do provide a sort of link to the outside world in terms of um, uh, there's a race doctor on call 24 hours a day where you can pick up the sat phone to try and get in contact. If we do have a problem, we all carry on board uh, the same medical manual. So if something is wrong, um, say if like somebody you had a deep infected cut or something, they could tell you to turn to page whatever and show you the diagrams of what you need to do to try and overcome what the problem is. Right. Um, but um, we have everybody has to complete a mandatory set of courses: uh, sea survival, sea navigation, first aid at sea, ocean rowing certificate. Uh, VHF course and it's not just like one person in the boat has to have it everybody has to have completed it um, so that gives you a good basis of understanding to try and overcome some of those potentially first aid issues that may come up well tell us about the extreme conditions that you face because um, it's not just the Atlantic Ocean's environments it's obviously you've got the you know enduring the four to six weeks itself on the boat so tell us a bit more about yeah, so our conditions, the, the way that the boat will run, um, we as a five um, will roughly work on a two hours on, two hours off basis, um, where that's two hours rowing, two hours off, and in those two hours off, then you're expected to get cleaned, get fed, and get, get some sleep in, and then await your call to get back on the oars. And really, that's as simple as it's going to get. The, about an hour a day has to be put into um, the boat in terms of maintaining it. So cleaning down the solar panels, cleaning off the deck, making sure all of our equipment are running properly. Um, but that it is life at its most simple in a way. Uh, we'll have a daily check-in with um, the race organisers, um, as well as we'll be doing some uh, broadcast um uh, stuff on social media to try and bring it to family and friends and followers um, in terms of what the actual race is itself. The extreme of it, of course, is the uh, endurance. So dealing with that regime of two hours on, two hours off. Yeah. We've been practicing, um, um, doing some overnight rows on the uh, 4th. Um, and we've How been trying... They yeah, they've gone really well, actually. Um, our first one, we went from where we've got our boat station in Port Edgar, just at the uh, Fourth Road Bridge. Um, and we went right round to the far side of Musselburgh. We saw Edinburgh from the sea at night, which was interesting yeah. as people, we could see people in flats sitting down to watch uh, TV and we were out there <laughs> scoffing our freeze dried meals. 
Um, and in the second one, we went the opposite direction, which is up to Grangemouth. And uh, I can confirm that Grangemouth really doesn't look much better in the nighttime sky <laughs> than it does in the day. Exactly. Uh, in fact, actually, we did have a couple of close calls uh, returning from Grangemouth where we came across, upon a set of rocks that we hadn't planned for oh, in our okay. ocean, our passage planning. So that was an immediate about turn. And, and if you can imagine at night, uh, all the towns, lights twinkle off of the sea and we, a set of these twinkling lights were coming towards us very quickly at one stage. And it, it was a, quite a large uh, ship oh coming gosh. into Great Rangemouth. And all of a sudden there was a, and there was a massive spotlight put on us and they followed <laughs> us round. Um, but like there's things like this, it's all learnings for us. Yeah. So we know now that we should probably not head eastwards along the Firth of Forth because it's too treacherous for the boat. And it's a very busy shipping lane because yeah. it narrows in and there's not as much room for us to manoeuvre. We are very slow. Like we're travelling at about three, four knots, whereas you know these boats coming in are probably at seven, eight, so double the, the speed of us. Um, so inevitably we cannot move or manoeuvre out of the way as quickly. Um, and then we're, in fact, tonight we're planning for a double night um, this weekend as long as conditions um, allow for it. But every time we go out, we learn something new and we've... Um, uh, we set goals every time as well. So the first time was to make sure we did our 16 hours. And the second time is to start using the equipment. I think over the next two nights, we'll be further using a lot more equipment, trying to drill better in terms of getting our shift pattern and the changeover slick so that we are, yeah, just that we're not burning or wasting time. We want to make sure that people are on the oars quickly rather than it taking us 10, 15 minutes every time to change shift. Because over a day, that's an hour over a week, you know, that's seven hours, over four weeks, you've, you've, you've added an extra day or two to your crossing. And what about the, the Atlantic itself? You know, what kind of waves, what conditions there should you expect? Um, so I think it could be a real mixed bag. As I said before, um, you know, it could be very becam conditions. Mm -hmm. When we say becam, that's like mill pond. Um, and it's just a very strange uh, phenomenon, if you think about it, when you're at, out in the middle of an ocean that is, you know, several thousand meters deep, but yet there's not a ripple on the yeah. on the top. Um, there will be rolling 30, 40 meter waves. And I think to anybody who's looked at coastal water, you think 30, 40 meter waves, oh my goodness, that's, how would you survive? Um, but the reality is that that's rolling waves rather than crashing oh, waves. Okay. So uh, if you think about, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but if you think about waves just rolling up and down rather than crashing or breaking, that's what happens. There are, it may well be circumstances that if we're rowing into a headwind and we're not able to sustain the speed we want, we may need to go onto a thing called a para anchor, or, um, uh, which is effectively we put a parachute out at the back of the boat, which holds us steady in the water and then allows the waves to rush through. Um, and that takes the sort of danger side of it, out of it for us in terms of, uh, we, although it takes the danger out of it, but the side effect of it is that we have to go into the cabins where five of us will have to hunker down <laughs> in the two cabins. Uh, and I said, that's probably one of our next fears in terms of the space, uh, as we talked about. What about the fifth barrel? The sea can fit two in each cabin. Well, what would you do with That'll be uh, phrased. It's going to be squashed somewhere, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, Doug has said, if we ever go to, uh, Doug said, uh, who's the largest of us, um, has said, if we ever have to go to Paranga, I'm just going to tie myself to the deck. I cannot do... <laughs> 
three of us in one of those little cabins. Um, which is great chat and great talk, but it'll be interesting Reality. to see if that actually comes out in practice. So where will you get that practice? You know, I, I don't, We're never going to really be in big seas. We talked about going out to the West Coast and doing some um, uh, rowing out there. The problem we have is because we're only ever going to be so far off of the coast here in the UK, we have to protect the boat. Like it's our number one, like, you know, any danger that there's going to be problems with us being blown onto uh, rocks, we just can't allow to do it. It's our, it is the, ve- you know, it's our vessel we're going to be racing and we've got to protect it. So as much as we'd love to go out and get into that sort of um, uh, big seas, we've got to make sure we get to the start line and our boat's protected. I think the, uh, and we know already actually this year of a crew who in their first or second outing got washed on rocks and their boat was completely destroyed. And they've only just been able to get another boat. And you know, their timeline now for training on that boat is shortened. And we'd probably end up not being in the race if our boat was to be significantly damaged. So it's all about protection of it. I think there's, there's always a mantra, nothing will prepare you really for it. So as much as you could go out into big waves and all the rest of it, it doesn't prepare you for whenever you're actually in the race itself, I don't think. Gosh. Well, I mean, obviously you've talked quite a bit about preparation, but tell us a bit more, because obviously for a race like this, there's the sponsorship drive, there's organising the boat itself, and you've recently been down to Yorkshire to have everything checked over. So yeah. can you tell us a bit about how that went and also just your whole... Yeah, certainly. So um, we have been really fortunate. Um, we are being trained by uh, two former Olympic athletes, uh, John and Rachel Schofield, who both represented the Team GB in Rio and uh, London in sprint kayaking. And they're doing our physical PT, but they have tapped us into some of the Sport GB setup in terms of mental, uh, so a sports psychologist, um, nutritionist, and a physio who are literally at the end of the phone whenever we want to speak to them. We're doing some more structured work with the sports psychologist who it blows our mind every time we have a session with her. She's just so uh, pushy. She wants to get the awkward questions, you know, what makes you tick, what doesn't, how would I know you're having a bad day? And really is trying to set us up for trying to understand each other's dynamic. Um, and that's as, like, as much as the physical side of the training as a lot about the mental. And we've been quite committed to making sure that we don't, uh, don't just uh, rely on the physical training. We need to make sure that we're really mentally aware. And we've worked with another company called Q5 um, who gave us some pro bono consulting work where they did Belbin assessments against all of us to see how or what our strengths and challenges were within the team. And that was really interesting to uncover probably some quite honest conversation actually that we may not have had if we hadn't have uh, gone through that exercise. So there's the, the actual physical and the mental side, but then there's the actual boat and kit as well. Like, it's just endless. I cannot describe to you how many emails, conversations we have about uh, the smallest piece of kit on the boat to the biggest piece of kit. What is it? Where does it come from? How do we get it? Can we find a sponsor for that piece of kit? Can we get trade discounts? Um, who's used what kit previously? What were the advantages? What were the disadvantages? Should we upgrade? Should we stick with what we've got? Gosh, and it goes so across everything. And all five of us have all quick, have very quickly had to become electricians, uh, nutritionists, um, boat dynamics in terms of what works in a boat, what doesn't. You know, it's, 
it's certainly been um, a very steep learning curve. Um, I don't come from a sailing background. I come from a coastal rowing background where we're only ever a few hundred meters away from the, the coast. Um, and so trying to get our arms around terminology, uh, understanding you know, like fluid dynamics in terms of what makes the boat go faster. Things like this, are, things like those are just endless. Okay, and, um, and that culminates in what we did then a few weeks back, as you referred to in Yorkshire, where we go down Atlantic campaigns. It's the first time we've met them uh, face to face. And uh, we certainly wanted to make sure we impressed them with our prep and understanding of the boat. Uh, you literally set out every single thing that you're going to have on the boat. Or if you don't have it, they're fine with that. But as long as you acknowledge that you don't have the equipment, but they know where it's coming from eventually. Yeah, because I saw some pictures and just like huge, just like, you know, yeah. everything that's involved uh, and goes on that boat. Exactly. And it's all, and it all has to be laid out a certain mm -hmm. way. And then they want to go through it and pick through it. And they're actually not, they're not even just ticking off the list to make sure you have it. They want to understand, they want to make sure you understand how the kit works. Good. Mm -hmm. So it's like, right. All oh, right. You've got a power, a uh, power anchor. All oh, right. Great. Has it got enough rope on it? Yeah. Why does it need to have that length of rope? I'm like, well, that's... You need to have that length rope because of you count uh, how high the waves are and that dictates how far it needs to go out. Okay, tick, right, move on. The bilge pump, the roving bilge pump, are you, are you sure that it fits in every nook and cranny of the boat? Hands up, no, we're not. It's like, right, can you make sure it gets tested, please? You know, things yeah. like that, they would go through the minutia. It's like, right, your radio here, the button seems a bit uh, squeaky. Do you know why that is? Why is that? Do you need to fix it? You know, it's, they leave no stone unturned. And so whenever that inspection is the forerunner to whenever we get to La Gomera, they've given us a report of things we need to fix or um, replace. They then go through another inspection when we get to La Gomera, and then they do a further inspection to do the whole thing all over again. And then it's all about packing and unpacking to make sure that you know where everything is on the boat. Yeah. Well, I mean, gosh, there must be a huge amount of sacrifice and discipline in preparing for this. So... Um, you know, how do you, how do you actually get the time to train? You know, you're saying obviously you, 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 you hopefully, you know, you're going out on a two-nighter this weekend, but I mean, you've all got jobs and, you know, other personal commitments. Yeah. How do we find the time? How do we find the time? Uh, a good question. I think our wives and girlfriends uh, would probably say that uh, this comes at a great sacrifice of family time, which it absolutely does. Um, uh, we just, we just have to, you just find that you just have to slot it in, like, Sometimes when I've got a 30 minute window in my calendar for work, I'll go straight into a core session and like do all of the stretching and exercising. And then I'm straight back on the phone again in terms of my next meeting that I have to be at. <laughs> um, and I think it's all about just trying to work around. Cause like our families probably have felt the brunt of quite a bit of the sacrifice on it in terms of timeline. I certainly, I feel as if I haven't been present for a lot of, family commitments and my wife would probably say the same thing uh, that's the same across all of us um, but we just we find a way of slotting it in somewhere um, I would say we've, we haven't been too hard on each other like if there's been a period where we're really maxed out with work and training has to take second place well okay that's just the way it has to be um, we all know that we're committed to making being in as best place as possible for day one or for the start of the race, but we cannot not have jobs or, um, you know, just completely push our families to the background. It just, it's not fair. Um, so we just got to work with each other and make sure that we're 
um, yeah, just getting the work done as much as Great. we can do. Well, let's talk about the nutritional side of things. As you're rowing, as you said, two hours on, two hours off, and you're burning over 9,000 calories a day. So you obviously will need practical, nourishing food that's easy to digest, as well as, you know, um, prepared a certain amount of water a day to rehydrate yourself. So tell us about the diet and supplies that you'll have on board, as well as how you prepare for the weight loss. Yeah, certainly. So... Um, Oh goodness! Cast your mind back to Duke of Edinburgh. I don't know if we were telling yeah, you did Duke of Edinburgh, did it, but, but yeah. uh, cast your mind back to that and think about your freeze-dried rations that you had. <laughs> like, luckily, they have moved on significantly, and some of them are quite gourmet in terms of their. Well, I tasted some of your snacks when we were down seeing the boats. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, I've been really okay. impressed actually. Yeah. I mean, in, in all honesty. Uh, if somebody said uh, one of the meals that I'd put on a plate for me, I'd be like, well, that's quite tasty. Uh, maybe that <laughs> you might a not lot. be saying that after six weeks. But, well, that's yeah. true. Maybe that says a lot about my cooking. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, so uh, in fact, we're actually just doing our meal planning right now um, in preparation for ordering it. Um, we have to carry about 1.4, just over 1.4 million calories on the boat. Um, we have to actually carry 55 days worth of food. And that's dictated to by Atlantic campaigns. Uh, should it be a bad year, we don't get wins, then 55 days is roughly what they'd say a long crossing would take and we have to have enough food on board for that. So fifty. So that is oh, 1,375 packs of foods. Uh, I don't know how, I can't remember the total volume of chocolate bars, nuts, peanut butter, uh, protein packs, which are from one of our sponsors, Built by Nutrition. In fact, big shout out to Tonics, who have just said they're going to give us Tonics wafers for free. Oh, fantastic. I know, good taste of home, <laughs> Scottish brand. Um, they've given us a few hundred of them, Great. Uh, uh, which we'll pick up in the next few weeks. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's very meticulous in terms of like, they, they want to see how many meals, what's the split in terms of wet. A wet meal is already a prepared meal you don't need water for. A freeze dried is literally that dry, pop water in, let it freshen up as much as it will freshen up <laughs> and get stuck, oh. it, stuck into it. Um, we are probably, we've actually made a decision um, that we're going vegetarian on freeze-dried meals. Uh, there's some feedback over recent years that not letting the meals uh, hydrate properly can have an impact on some gastro problems. Right. So we're just going to say, we're going to take that out of the equation. And Dunk, who is a vegetarian, um, it means that there's no pick and choosing on feet. meals. If you touch it, you eat it. So you're not pick yeah. and choosing the ones out of it and we're all in the same boat. Um, and we're going to have some uh, salamis from Great Glen, Great Glen Charcuterie who are supplying us to top it up as part of our snacks. Um, and, uh, and then the water itself, you know, it's the, it's the, I suppose the, the great conundrum. You're surrounded by water, but none of it you can drink. Mm -hmm. um, we have a desalinator on the boat, which will, uh, it, by pushing salt water through a high pressure membrane, it takes the salt out and you're left with uh, drinking water. We'll probably need to produce, I think about 50 liters a day to both do food and drinking water for it, which means we need to run the uh, desalinator for about two hours a day. Um, and that needs to be part of our routine, as I talked to you know, in terms of the boat maintenance and making sure that the equipment all runs. The desalinator is absolutely our lifeline. Like if it goes down, we then have a hand pump. Uh, and to put it into uh, oh, in yeah, context, to have to do that. Uh, to have to do that as well as rowing. Um, our auto um, uh, water maker will do twenty four liters an hour. 
um, the hand pump will do one liter an hour. Oh gosh, that's and if what we that need exactly, <laughs> so we'd be we'd have to be out on that twenty four hours a day yeah. if it goes down. But this is it. This is what the Atlantic campaigns are all about. You've got what you need, but then you've got a backup for everything yes. as well. Well, one of the previous race organisers said at least 50% of this fleet will change their career, where they live, what they do, they will take on new adventures, and that's the beauty of this race. Do five in a row feel it be a, a life-changing experience? I think we're already seeing that in all honesty. Um, it's very... Um, I think we're probably uh, learning about being tolerant of each other and we're an understanding of people's dynamic. Uh, I think the mental prep, like as I said before, every time we do a session with Katie Mobit, we literally come off and be like, this is, it's simple, but it should actually be incorporated into everyday life about how to, you know, uh, reason with children, how to uh, uh, work as a better team with our partners, you know, things like that, which I think will inevitably and should actually leak into everyday life. So I think some of it from a mental prep perspective will be life-changing. Will it change uh, us in terms of careers and whether we'll be totally different jobs 12 months after? I don't know, because we, we haven't done it. We're not sure yet. But I can, I can certainly see that, personally for me anyway, I've, I think we're starting to uh, take on board and actually learn some of the things we're being taught right now. And I think I probably... I've learned that I, I can be um, probably aspire for more in terms of career and really push myself because I'm doing this as well as a full-time job, as well as being a dad, as well as being a husband. You know, there's room in my life to be able to push uh, rather than just always just pushing work. There's more to be done, I think, in terms of life. Well, you touched on before just the impact that obviously this challenge has on your family. Is it how did your families initially feel about you doing this challenge? And, you know, how much contact will you have with them during the crossing? What's he crossing? <laughs> the ocean. <laughs> um, so it's been a bit of a mix, actually, because so three of us are um, married and have, have uh, kids. In fact, we have 10 kids between three of us. Um, uh, certainly my family, uh, I've probably had a lot of conversation about it. I didn't commit... I said before, I was in and then I was out and then I was back in again. Um, certainly, I didn't just announce I'm doing this. There was a lot, quite a lot of conversation about, well, why am I doing it? What's the motivator behind it? Uh, you know, why would I put myself in danger? And things like that. And really a very frank conversation about what it would mean to actually participate in it. And kids-wise, I think it's been quite a mixed bag across all ten. Some of them are quite concerned about it in terms of, why are you doing this, Daddy? Um, whereas other ones are like, this is brilliant, yeah, where's my kit? I need the five-in-a-row <laughs> kit. Uh, so it's been a, a, you know very mixed in terms of as kids' perception. How old are all your children? Oh, okay. it's good. So uh, from first year secondary school down to three, um, uh, Hector. Some will uh, get it. Some. Yeah, will Hector. He doesn't get it. He'll probably just realise I'm, I'm missing for a couple of months, <laughs> and then probably want, want to know where his present is. Um, uh, but yeah, it's been quite a mixed bag in terms of how they've seen it. But having said that, like, um, uh, um, one of the boys, Angus, my one of my kids, he's been like writing presentations about it and presenting at school. Fantastic. Um, and there's a lot of the other boys have fed into that as well. Um, but yeah, so it's been. I think there's been a lot of conversation with it with our, within the families to make sure that we're all 
fully aware of what we're actually what we stepped into before committing to it. Yeah. Well, your chosen charity is one very close to your heart, Reverse Red. So tell us about Red Syndrome and the reasons for it being your chosen charity to fundraise for. Yeah, so um, we have big aspirations for raising money for Rett and uh, Reverse Rett. Um, Ross's daughter Eliza uh, suffers from Rett syndrome. Uh, it affects one in ten thousand uh, young girls born. Um, so it's relatively rare in that respect, um, and as a result, it's a very underfunded uh, charity in terms of medical research. And like any small charity, they are, you know, run on a shoestring and really need as much funding as they possibly can. And being, uh, and with uh, Ross's daughter, uh, something it's, you know, it's something we're really motivated to raise money for and raise awareness for. It's actually one of our big goals as part of the campaign itself. We want to make sure we raise a significant amount of money and raise awareness for people. Red syndrome itself is effectively where... Uh, young girls get to about the age of I think it's two to three and stop progressing and that it's effectively where their brain doesn't send or it doesn't uh, your body can't keep up with the signals that their brain are sending and almost like a locked in syndrome and there's a certain amount of research that says that there, there's no non-development within the brain it function itself and they're really hopeful that they can actually reverse the effects of it hence yeah, the name reverse with um been certain tests where they've seen it reversing yeah. animals so they, they feel they can cure it they need obviously the the funding and further research Is exactly that, right? that and um i think there's a couple of actually professors here in edinburgh who spearhead a lot of the um, work that's going on with it in the uk um but yeah it's it's an like anybody who's got kids you know you would hate for your children or for being in any situation but i think with the fact that it, uh, it's so close to home for us then it's something we're really passionate about. We want to make sure that we do as, as well as we can do by the, the charity. Absolutely. Well, well, what variety of opportunities are there for people to support Five in a Row and Reverse Rate and, and how can they get in contact then? Oh, definitely. There's loads of opportunity. We are. Um, we have a mantra in the crew. A dripping tap fills the bucket. <laughs> um, and that goes for everything in terms of the funding um, that we needed in order to do this. Um, just, you know, uh, so uh, people can get in contact with us through uh, five in a row dot co dot uk that's f-i-v-e uh, in a row dot co dot uk or at five dot row on social media um, there's loads of content out there so far with what we've been doing and um, you will uh, yeah please follow us follow the journey because we want to build up a good following uh, so that our sponsors get something back as well um, but yeah, loads of opportunities in terms of sponsorship packages uh, from a few pounds right up to thousands if you've uh, got deep enough wallets, people. Um, but yeah, just get in contact with us. As I say, we're more than happy to have conversations with people on how they can uh, get something out of it if they want to. Fantastic. Well, we've got some rowers in the uh, City Lich rank, so we are, you've got huge kind of deep admiration for what you guys are, are doing for the challenge. And we wish you the very best. Oh, no, thank you. And thank you, City Let's, for backing us. Oh, and, yeah. uh, I don't know, this is one of the, uh, if you want to call it a cold email success for us, actually, because we just sent City Let's an email and it just resonated, I think, with um, City Let's in terms of what we're doing. And as you say, the roar in your midst. 
So yeah, thank you, Sarilets, for uh, backing us to get us to start. Welcome. Well, hopefully we'll see. We'll, we'll greet you at the Caribbean because um, yeah, we, we take our sponsorships very seriously, aren't uh, it? Oh, Julian, I would be uh, gutted <laughs> if uh, there isn't a work meeting in Antigua. Yeah, logistic business reasons, of course. <laughs> anyway, all the best. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm Gillian Sandler. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to the Let's Talk channel on all the usual platforms, including Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as on citylets.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And also let your friends know where to find us. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show providing insight into the world of property letting. More information on today's show can always be found on our show notes along with this podcast. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's talk at citylets.co.uk. Thank you.